I was, I was recently reading uh, an autobiography. And uh, like many biographies, it, it had at various intervals pages of photos of the person growing up and has little captions saying what part of the story of their life that the image relates to. You know, the type of thing, this is their school, this is them with their mates, all that type of stuff. And, uh, and it actually winds me up when I get to those pages. You know, it really disturbs my flow of reading because these glossy things that are in there sort of sometimes come mid-sentence for a star. You know, you get a word here and then you're like four pages on before you get to the next word. But more than that, more than that, they tell me things that I've not got to yet in the story of the person's life. You know, if I'm reading a biography, I want to flow through it. You know, I don't suddenly want to get to that, that bit where it reveals who they're going to get married to or who they're going to work with. Uh, you know, I might actually know those things, but I don't want it to suddenly appear in front of me if they're still at school and here's the picture of them on their wedding day. You know, that just doesn't go together. It, it, it hints. And also, sometimes the, the bit that we're reading, it can be a, a really difficult moment in their life. And then you get to the photos, and we tend to take pictures on the sunnier days. It's the beautiful view, the wonderful scenery, the smiley face. It's not the frowns. It's not so much the sickness. It's not so much the sorrow. It's the smiles. It's the better days. And so, again, that, that throws me. But our passage today, I really like, but it's a bit like them glossy photos. It comes in the middle of something. It's an interlude in a bigger story. If, if, if instead of reading just the sort of two-thirds, second two-thirds of Revelation chapter 7, we'd started a whole chapter earlier. You know, I'm not going to put that on you today. But uh, if you'd started a whole chapter earlier at, at chapter 6, you'd have seen that there was a scroll. And the scroll has seven seals on it. And as it, each seal is opened, um, there's, a, there's a growing threat that, that you, you can feel that something is happening and that there is a darkness to some sort of thing. There's got to be more tribulation. And, and there's got to be the sense of the wrath coming upon people. The, the, there's like a threat of war and destruction and 
with each seal. And at the end of chapter 6, six seals have been opened, right? And the scroll had seven. So you turn the page and you expect to get the seventh seal. But that doesn't happen until chapter 8. Instead, we have an interlude. We have the glossy pages. And then chapter 7, what we have is an eternal vision of hope and peace and love and protection. In amongst this huge story of what might seem to the reader or to the one who's hearing it read in a church, which is what was originally supposed to happen, what might happen to the reader is that they have this sense of foreboding. And they get to a story that says, you know what? God is love. God cares about you. God is passionate for you. And there's this vision of what it will be after the tribulation. It's these pictures of hope. And a new dynamic is open to us as we're reading about the seals being opened. We get to a time that says, you know what, there's something else going on here too. There's a bigger story. There's going to be an outcome. Often people are fearful of reading the book of Revelation. They know of the seals or they've heard of them and of the beasts and of destruction and of cataclysm and they have the sense that they will avoid it. But three times this month, this is the first of them, Three times this month, we will be turning to the book of Revelation. And what we get is a slightly different picture. A picture far from fear, but that should give us hope. Because that's what God wants to give us in the vision of Revelation. It's a sense of hope. And that's what God wants to give us at all times. In our text, people are worshipping God, a multitude, far, far too many to count. The number is too huge. And considering the text earlier in this chapter, the, the bit that we jumped over, I gets the tribes of Israel up to 144,000. You can see it, it's got to be a big number. It's got to be a massive number that represent the church gathered from across the earth and across time. All of humanity in relationship with Christ is represented there. Every nation, every tribe, Every people, every language, every way you can think 
of there being a diverse congregation is gathered as part of the multitude. Everything that would normally seen as being dividing us, you know, the place that we're in, we've got those up top there, we've got those round the corner, we've got those in Hayward's Heath or Burgess Hill or the far end of the world. Everyone are together before Christ. We are one there. And of course, that means that if we say or do anything against another believer because of their nationality or because of their tongue or their color of skin, we are not only racist, but being offensive to our brother and sister in Christ. When we put our earthly heritage, be it race or our economic benefit that we have simply by stint of where we are born or the family that we are born into or the other privileges that we've experienced in life above those who are also children of our Heavenly Father, we are being unfaithful to God. Because he loves them folk. He cares passionately for them and wants the best for them. These people are our family. And as far as the text is concerned, we have everything in common. Those things that are considered earthly differences are not differences to God. For we are all part of the multitude praising God together. And the playing cards might be in different suits. Spades and clubs might be black and hearts and diamonds red. But they're all part of the one pack of cards. And you can't play the game without them. We are one. And in Christ, we are loved equally, and we are called to love equally. If we have chosen to wash our robe, that is, taken the decision to follow Jesus, then that's what we should do. We should follow him. And then return, he, as Isaiah puts it, clothes us with garments of salvation. The robes are more than white. You know, more than the best bio-washing powder. They're not simply brilliant. They are pure. And it reflects that in Christ, we are all taken and made pure. We're all turned from that disruption and things that we bring to be pure before the Lord. And, and that's not pure and brilliant white, not due to the scrubbing efforts of those of us who have washed our robe. You know, it's not our good deeds. And it's not 
that we had the special technique. It, we, it's not that we had certain knowledge. And it's not that we're pointing to the next person and saying, my robe's whiter than theirs. You know, I've got a better brand of washing powder. Or I didn't put it in with a pair of black socks the other day. You know, that sort of thing. The whiteness is all the same. And it's because of the incredible love of God that forgives us, whoever we are. And with that, the crowd, the thronging multitude, praise God. Not just with one voice, but with how they offer themselves. It's with and as one body. With palm fronds waving, the scene is like that triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem at the start of Holy Week that we reenacted here as we brought our prayers to the Lord and brought our palm branches. As we prepared the way for the coming king at the start of Holy Week. But that image itself would have in the first century as the people waved their branches made them think of the seven-day festival of the tabernacles, remembering how God frees his people to journey through the wilderness to the promised land. In Nehemiah, as the word is read to the um, people that are rebuilding uh, the city, and actually I think of Nehemiah. Spring Harvest was doing Nehemiah. Now, um, the Morrison family were there and the McCleary's were there. Hi, Peter. Um, watch out for us on Songs of Praise tonight. I don't know whether you'll see us or not, but it's from Spring Harvest at Mount Head. So we might be this speck in the distance somewhere, but it might be there. Anyway, Nehemiah, as the scroll there gets read. We discover that palm branches that are waved in victory are also those that are used to build the shelters that are used for the festival of booths that they would camp in. But there's a new dynamic in our passage. Although the people are waving their palm fronds, they don't have to build the booth. They're not doing the work. Because it says that God's going to extend his tent over them. You know. The multitude don't need that new shelter. They will be protected from the heat of the day. For God's going to give them it. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. The sun will not be upon them nor any scorching heat. They are protected because God's going to watch over them. 
And that sense of tent is, of course, uh, reminiscent of the tabernacle, the place of worship. And, it, and it's this uh, sense of temple, not just the outer reaches of it. You know, at the temple, there was the inner part and there was the, the different courtyards around the outside. What we're talking about is the inner part, the place of worship, the holiest place. It's got to be the part that reaches over them and protect them. The vision is there of God's compassionate care. And he gives this vision as they're reading about the opening of the seals because they need to hear it just as we need to hear it. They need to know of that protection. They need to know of that hope. Because these people were already going through tribulation. These were the persecuted church. To simply hear of more pain without any message of hope would have been too much to bear. But now there is an encouragement to persevere. There is a message that to keep going will be rewarded with an eternity of peace. Despite all the things in the world to now, there is something to hope for. The church that John shared his vision with were in great difficulty. They'd cried out, how long? And we may still do that. How long? However, we can also taste the victory. We can know that Christ has overcome the evil one. And so we can live with hope and praise for the one that reigns on high. May we live for him. As God's people, may we live for him. Not just in the future, in that time when we're gathered with the multitude, but may we live for him today, loving his way. Amen.